On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. In our last conversation, Mike, we were focusing on the baptism of Jesus, and then I did ask you what happened immediately after that, and that gives a clue perhaps to the focus of our conversation this time, but we're in a very different place. Oh, very different. Last time we were in a very flat place right down there by the River Jordan, where Jesus submitted himself to baptism, the hands of John the Baptist. And from there, you can look west towards the steep hills of the Judean hills, And what we've done now is we've inverted that. We've come up to the top of those Judean hills and we are now looking down. And where we look from where we are at the moment, perched on the very edge of a a rocky escarpment, we can look down and see the plain below is quite green for the most part because it's all around Jericho, which was an oasis and still is to this day. Beyond it, we can see the River Jordan, some arid land near it as it gets near to the Dead Sea and the hills on the other side in modern-day Jordan disappearing into the heat mist today. And we are perched up about just over 1,100 feet here uh, on a balcony sort of hanging over the edge of this rock, wondering how on earth these buildings up here manage to cling on like they do. And normally you'd actually have to get up here by cable car. I can see below us a cable car, which I think is being serviced, isn't it? Yeah, I was really, well, I was both disappointed the cable car wasn't working today, but pleased to know at least uh, they do take it out of service to to look after it from time to time. So, in fact, our drivers had to bring us up the incredibly winding and narrow road to get us as near to the top as he could do, uh, and then we've had to walk it the rest of the way to get to where we are now. And so at this height, what is that building that you can see in front of you? (laughs) Well, there, perched into the rock face in such a way that I think, how on earth are you hanging there, is the Greek Orthodox monastery of the Monastery of the Temptation, as it's called, 1,150 feet above the ground down there below. Of course, the ground down there below is below at sea level significantly. Mm. Uh, and, and getting breathtaking views of the whole of the Jordan Valley here and the Judean wilderness and and so on. Where this monastery is, it's actually a relatively modern monastery. It was built at the end of the 19th century. Um, But we know that monks and hermits have lived in caves in this area from the earliest days of Christianity. And certainly by the fourth century, remember that was the time when the emperor became a Christian and suddenly it was permitted for Christians to build their own buildings. They couldn't before then. And so from that time, we get this outbreak of of building of Christian buildings. And we know that there was a monastery here dating back to the fourth century, recording this event in the scriptures of how Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into this barren, rocky area where frankly there is nothing and where he's tempted and tested by the devil. So looking across this amazing view, we can see for miles and miles and miles, and the city of Jericho, the modern city, spread out before us on the plain below. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a phenomenal view. So from the River Jordan, where Jesus was baptised, he was led up here. 
of all the places to be led? It would be the very last place you'd feel like being led to, really, wouldn't it? And yet the spirit leads him here because something very important is going to happen, something where Jesus is going to have to resolve the sort of Messiah that he is going to be. So you say the monastery is called the Monastery of Temptation. This is what the Mount of Temptation. So it was where the temptation of Jesus happened, but there wasn't just one temptation. No, there, there were a series of them. The Gospels record for us three temptations. And, you know, was it just three temptations that Jesus had? Were these key temptations in a whole series of temptations? I suspect there were more than three over a period of 40 days that he was here. Or were there a whole number? And this summarizes the sort of temptations that he faced. We simply don't know. But the Gospels record three key powerful temptations that he faced really very close to where we are sitting. Well, remind us of them in uh, which account? Well, we're going to read Luke's account, although it is in Matthew and Mark as well. But I'm going to read from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. Now, let's just remind ourselves, why is he full of the Holy Spirit? Because after his baptism, the heavens have opened, God's voice has been heard, the Spirit has come upon Jesus to anoint him for the ministry that he's about to begin. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor for it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time. It sort of sounds a little bit like a conversation, but, I mean, up here at this height, in this heat, wasn't that just Jesus' thoughts? Well, do you know what? We, we don't know how these temptations came. You know, did the devil appear in some sort of human form? Did he just hear Satan's voice out loud? Did he hear Satan's thoughts in his mind? We don't know, and I'm not sure we need to know what we need to know is that these temptations and testings were very, very real indeed, and very persistent, of course. What did they sort of get to the bottom of? 
Well, really, they're all about a challenge to what sort of Messiah are you going to be, Jesus? Now, remember, Satan knew what was going on here. Now, please remember, all our listeners, Satan is not omniscient. He does not know everything. Only God is omniscient. But he does know some things, and some things simply because he can read the writing on the wall. He clearly knew when the Son of God was coming into this world and the significance of what that would mean because he tried to get rid of him when he stirred up Herod to bring about that infanticide of all the baby boys age two and under in the hope of getting rid of Jesus. So Satan clearly knows that the Son of God has come into this world and he he wants to throw everything he's got at him, but he does it in a particular way. You know, Satan rarely tempts us with stuff that isn't tempting. He, he tempts us with things that he know, knows are either our weak spot or things that we could respond to if pushed. And what he does here is he tempts Jesus with regards to what sort of Messiah are you going to be? Are you going to be the sort of Messiah that I suspect God has sent you to be or the sort of Messiah that the people here in Judea and Samaria and Galilee want you to be? Uh, a guy who can do quick tricks, quick miracles, quick fixes, who raise up an army and, and get rid of the Romans from this place. So all of them really focus around this idea of what sort of Messiah are you going to be? And it's interesting that happens right at the beginning. Jesus has just been baptized. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. God's affirmed who he is. He's about to set off. But before he can begin, this issue has to be settled. What sort of Messiah is he going to be? And to some extent for us today, is, is that where the enemy gets us in our Achilles heel? Oh, Absolutely. And so he will always go for our Achilles heel, which is why it's so important always to sort of be alert. You know, the New Testament says, be alert for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, St. Peter says. And he will always look to go for those areas of weakness, which is why, you know, this is where the church and where Christian brothers and sisters come in so much, because to have even just one or two really close Christian friends with whom you have chosen to share your weakness, with whom you can say, to be honest, this, if I'm going to struggle, this is the area I'm going to struggle in. It would be great if from time to time you just ask me, are you doing all right in that area? So I know I'm going to have to give an account to you. Because the devil does go for those areas that he knows we not necessarily will, but could respond to. And each of these... Now, Jesus is not going to respond to them. He's going to depend on God, but he could have responded to them. And he could have made a very different choice about the sort of Messiah he would be. And, and Satan knew that, which is why he goes for it. What strikes you about the way that Jesus does respond? Oh, it's great, isn't it? I mean, every single time Jesus answers with a simple sentence, it is written and quotes a scripture. He does not get into long conversations with the devil. So there's something to learn from that. He simply quotes scripture at Jesus. Interestingly enough, 
in one of the temptations, Satan then quotes scripture back at him. You know, even the devil can know the Bible, can't he? And Jesus quotes scripture again. So a couple of things for me. One is, here is the power of the word of God. It's not magic. You know, it's not like a magic talisman. But when we believe the word of God and draw from the word of God, it does have power to break into situations and to help us in those situations. The other interesting thing I find in this story is that the quotations that Jesus uses here to respond to Satan are all from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what was Deuteronomy about? It was about Israel's time in the wilderness. And of course, in the wilderness, they'd learn some big lessons and in the wilderness, they would fail. But here is Jesus deliberately choosing scriptures from Deuteronomy. It's almost as if he is recapping, recapitulating Israel's history in the wilderness. But this time, Israel, embodied in him, is not going to fail. So why does he quote from Deuteronomy? Well, we've got to perhaps try and do the fly-on-the-wall technique. But, you know, one of the things that strikes me as extremely likely is that during his 40 days here in this rocky place where we are, Jesus wasn't just praying thinking I think he was meditating on the scriptures that he had learned from when he was a young boy memorization of scripture was really important in those days people didn't have their own copy of the Bible and they certainly didn't have a phone in their pocket that they could get the Bible on and I think what he's doing is he is using the scriptures that he has memorized in the good times you see that's why it's so important to steadily work your way through the word of God not make it a sort of lucky dip box that you come to from time to time when you think help I need a verse but I have found over the many years that I have been a Christian if you will just faithfully stick at reading God's word the next section the next chapter of whatever it is that you are reading the number of times I have found that the right scripture or the right passage is there on just the right day and when that happens, I know it's God speaking because it's not me wangling it. It's not me flicking through my Bible thinking, quick, let me find a verse that I like in this situation. No, this is God sovereignly just bringing up the right verse on the right day. And I think Jesus had been meditating on Deuteronomy, thinking back to scriptures he'd been memorizing from being a boy. And here in this arid, dry, hilly, rocky place, he starts to call on those scriptures he's put within his own heart and uses them to fight against the devil's tactics and temptations. And because of this great height that we're at, you know, you've almost got all the world before you. Was there also a, a challenge in the area of power? Yes, and do you know what? In some ways, all of them have an element of, of a challenge of power. Of course, the first one turn this stone into bread well look David if there aren't stones around here I don't know where there are stones they're all over the jolly place go on use your power not for others good not to bring about God's purpose use your power for your good in the second one 
Go on, use your power to win followers by miraculous displays. You know, throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. I think that must have been something that happened either, you know, mentally or in the spirit. I don't think he actually took him there. In the third one, you know, use your power to elevate yourself. You know, ju just compromise with me, Jesus, a little bit. Just be reasonable. Just give ground a little bit. So they're all really about power in, in one way or another. And as you say, seated up here, stones at your feet, the whole kingdoms of the world represented out there, even if you can't see them, we know they're there and beyond those hills in the mist. Each one of them is an attempt to get Jesus to abuse his power and therefore abuse his messiahship and not be the sort of messiah that God sent him to be at all. I've noticed you've sort of used the word temptation and testing interchangeably. I mean, are they the same or different? Well, I think they're different and sometimes different words are used and sometimes the same Greek word is, is translated different ways. Um, I suppose the slight difference is this. Temptation is, a, is an attempt to get you to do wrong. A testing is an attempt to see if what is there is authentic. So there's a slight difference. Now, both are happening here. You know, he is trying to get Jesus to do wrong. He is trying to get Jesus not to trust God. Come on, just do a quick miracle. You know you're hungry. After 40 days, you're really hungry. Go on, turn that stone into bread. But of course, at that moment, he wouldn't be depending on God anymore. So there's temptation there, but there's also testing, this testing out of, okay, so you're committed to this call to be Messiah, are you? And to do it God's way. Well, let's see. So I think there is both temptation and testing going on here. And I've heard it said before that Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. But that doesn't help us because we do. Well, I think it helps us because... What it means is he knows what temptation is. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Now, does that mean that Jesus had every single temptation that any human has ever had going through his mind? No, I don't think it does. But I think what it means is every kind of temptation in every sphere of life, in every situation, whether it concerns family or personal life or thoughts or or employment, or workmates, or relating to people, whatever it might be, he was tempted in every way like we are, yet didn't sin. Now, because of that, that means he's got the secret for how to get through this. He knows how to deal with tempting and testing. And, and so we can go to him. The book of Hebrews is very strong on the teaching that Jesus is now ascended and is our high priest in heaven, sitting at the right-hand side of the Father, where he intercedes for us, where he's praying for us. And it's because he's been tempted in every way that we are. I can look and say, yep, I know exactly what's going on there. Just call out to me and I can help you. I smiled somewhat when you said that this monastery sort of built into the cliff face high up where we are. It's called the uh, Monastery of Temptation because that slightly sounds like a contradiction in terms in the sense that, you know, perhaps some of us would think perhaps 
going into a monastery or similar away from the temptations of the world is the only way out and you know what historically that's what happened and without wanting to make comment on any of the people who are in this monastery at the moment you know in the early centuries of the church there were people who became monks who withdrew themselves from society because they felt that was the only way to avoid temptation and so many of them came and lived in caves around here in fact looking out david right now we can see over on the rock face there just further on from the monastery there are actually some caves and oh, yeah. it's in caves like this where monks used to come and live there were there were even some in the early centuries of the church who used to live on top of a high pole there was a guy called simon stylites a stylite was a big pole and uh, he decided the best way to avoid sin would be to have this large pole the platform on top of it he got up there and uh, he would lower a bucket to you know bring up food and water and a bucket to get rid of all the stuff he didn't want up there uh, and he lived on top of this pole for years to avoid sin now do you know what? it's probably very easy to avoid sin at the top of a pole isn't it though do you know what oh, i think i've been living long enough let alone a pastor long enough to know that you can be on your own and temptation can still be very powerful you see at the end of the day temptations about our hearts and how we're going to respond to that and just sticking ourselves in a cave up a mountain or on top of a pole is per se not going to deal with it what's going to deal with it is first our being honest with jesus you know if you're facing whether it's temptation to do wrong or testing about what you're doing right take it to jesus shout that most powerful prayer of all help ask him for help and if you do he can come and help you second you know sharing with another brother or sister in christ whom you trust to stand with you pray with you to say look i'm going into this situation tomorrow it is going to be a real testing time for me or i've been invited to go into this situation i i know that can be a time of real temptation for me would you pray for me and even more important would you ask me the next day did i remain clean and clear and that's just a little incentive to keep you going so uh, sitting in a cave or a pole i don't think really rescues you because it, it's about the heart but there are ways of dealing with these things in life calling to jesus looking to our brothers and sisters for their help and encouragement and keeping accountable to them are a great ways of dealing with this temptation that's common to everybody the bible says what about the, the personal emotional damage if you like that can be caused by falling into temptation you know, when we say yes to temptation, it, it, can, it can feel really good at that moment, can't it? Because temptation is normally about something that we want to do, uh, or Satan wouldn't bother tempting us with it. And at that moment, it seems so enticing. And even at the moment we say yes to the temptation, it can feel so good until we've bitten into the fruit and discovered it's got a nasty aftertaste after all. And sometimes, it can be deeply damaging. I mean, one of the best examples of that in the Bible is what happened with King David 
when he was strolling on his palace roof one day. He shouldn't have been there, first of all. He should have been out leading his people in battle. But instead, he's fallen into a bit of comfortableness and he's staying at home. And one night, he's walking on the roof of his palace, looks down and sees a woman bathing. And rather than turning his eyes away quickly to the temptation, you know, he just takes one step. He asks his servant, um, who's that? And the servant says, oh, that's the wife. Alarm bells ought to be ringing of Uriah the Hittite. And again, rather than saying no there, he sends for her. He just wants a conversation, of course, nothing more. But we know where it leads. Eventually, he ends up sleeping with her. She gets pregnant, and he has to end up arranging for the death of her husband to try and cover up what had happened. But God saw it. And that could have left a deep, deep wound in David's life. In fact, the child of that union did die eventually, which must have been really sad. But David discovered you do not have to live with deep wounds. You can bring them to God. So when he is confronted by the prophet Nathan with that parable about the man who stole another man's little lamb, and he says, the man who did this deserves to die, and Nathan says, you're the man. What do we read next? David says quickly, I have sinned against the Lord. And what he does is he owns up to it quickly. And because of that, God loves that. God loves it when we own up and say, it was me, I did it. And God can do anything with a heart like that. And David finds his life turned around and changed because of that. And that can still be true for us today. So if we've failed in temptation, as I'm sure most of us listening to this episode will have done, don't let it be the end. Don't let it crush you. Don't let it defeat you. Yes, it might have been bad, even very bad, but take it to Jesus because there is nothing that he cannot forgive. I'll repeat that. There is nothing that he cannot forgive. So don't sit in the guilt of it. Bring it to him and seek his forgiveness. Is one of the problems, though, that you know we live in a modern world. There are temptations all around, and for Jesus, life was a lot simpler. It was a lot simpler, but it was a lot harder. You know, I sometimes think we think in the West today our lives much tougher, and the truth is there are lots of temptations that Jesus would never have had. You know, right in our pockets now, David, we've both got mobile phones which give us access to look at anything we want to look at, things that are bad as well as things that are helpful. But, you know, there were temptations that Jesus and people in his day had to face that we don't. You know, will the crops in our back garden grow? Will the lamb that I'm keeping in the backyard keep healthy? Will I be able to find food today? What's going to happen when the Roman soldiers come with their sword demanding taxes? So every person in every generation faces temptation. It's simply different. But the thing that's not different is Jesus. He's still the same. And in any and every generation, he is able to help those who face testing and temptation because he's been through it right up here where we are. And he conquered it. He found the victory in it. And as we come to him, we can find that too. Will we get it right always first time? I highly doubt it. But we can learn and grow in how to stand in facing testing and temptation as we bring things to him. And as far as Jesus was concerned, when those temptations were over, 
up on this high point. Was that it? Well, it's interesting that uh, passage that I just read to you, the devil, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Hmm, that opportune time wouldn't come until that final week leading up to the crucifixion, would it? But what does Jesus do then? Does he stay up here and continue to be a hermit? Does he go down and join John the Baptist down there by the Jordan? No. The very next verse we read that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now he's come from the Jordan in the power of the Spirit to here. He's been through testing and temptation. He's come through it. Guess what that does? It just heightens the power of the Spirit. And off he goes to Galilee to start his ministry there that we'll look at in coming episodes. And from here, that's some distance away, back to Galilee. It certainly is. It would have taken several days to get there. And one of the things you and I have commented on during the time that we've been here in the Holy Land is we've, we've had the comfort of an air-conditioned vehicle to take us around. Uh, but of course, Jesus had to walk everywhere in this sweltering heat. You know, I didn't check what it was, but it, it must be mid-30s again here today. Uh, and this is not even the height of summer when we're here. So even to walk anywhere, even if you'd walk 10 or 12 miles, would have been a really hard feat in those days. But it's what Jesus used to do. And he used to give himself to it because he knew this was part of what God had called him to. So on this Mount of Temptation, Mike, pray for us, if you would. Lord Jesus, here in this place where we remember that you were tempted and tested, we pray today for all who are feeling tempted and tested at this time. We ask that they might cry out to you for help and find your strength. We ask that you would stir up scripture within them on which they might stand and with which they might fight. And for any today, Lord, who are feeling so terribly guilty because they failed in temptation, may they, like King David, come and simply say to you, I have sinned before the Lord knowing that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, hear our prayer. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30 minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs, or Bible surprises.